Genesis chapter 2 as we resume our studies in the book of Genesis. Having preached the first few verses of this chapter concerning the original Sabbath, we come now to a shift in, in the uh, narrative. There is actually a title or a section title in the inspired text. It occurs uh, ten times throughout the book. We've noted it in the past, and we're going to run into it in, in our exposition. And I want to read, beginning with verse 4, and on down to verse 14. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out from Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and the onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hidekel, and it is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Before we look at this part of the narrative, let's pray for God's help once again. Father, we thank you and bless you that you've given to us this majestic account of what took place, first of all, when you created the heavens and the earth, and then this majestic and yet tender account that speaks of the way in which you formed man, the way in which you cared for him right from the very beginning. Help us to learn of your goodness, we pray. Help us to trust in you, to not lean on our own understanding. Help us, Lord, to learn what it is to magnify you for what you've done for us. You are a good God. Fill our hearts with praise, we do pray, as we reflect on these things this morning. We pray it all in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. There are some modern commentaries that take great pains to demonstrate that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are opposing accounts, and they are written supposedly by two different authors, and they represent two distinct traditions. But I fully embrace the traditional viewpoint that while Genesis 2 is a second creation account, it is another creation account, yet the accounts are synoptic. You know how we speak about the synoptic Gospels, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and by using that word synoptic, referring to the fact that they're recording basically the same thing and yet give different details and they harmonize one with another. 
And in the same way, these synoptic creation accounts, they record the same event, but from two different vantage points and with two different emphases. And whereas Genesis 1 centers on God and his creation of the vast universe, Genesis 2 uh, stresses the place where man originally lived. It was his original setting upon the earth. And we see this in the manner in which this section is introduced in verse 4. We run into what I just mentioned a moment ago in terms of an inspired heading in the account. In the first half of verse 4, we read, This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were first created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, earlier in our series in the book of Genesis, by, as we gave some introductory uh, lessons, we pointed out that the book is structured with ten sections, and each of these ten sections begins with the Hebrew word toledoth, which is translated generations of or history of in the more modern versions, like I just read from in terms of the New King James. In the Old King James, it's the generations of. And the term, it's derived from a root which means to give birth or to bear. So that's why it's, that old version translates it the generations of. And it introduced that which is, it could be physically a progeny, like the actual children that a father would father, and then the history of those children. But it could also be events that are, as it were, given birth to. And that's the way it's being used here in Genesis chapter 2. And in the rest of the book of Genesis, the formula introduces the history of the descendants of an important figure, or the generations, that is, the, gener- the people generated by that in- individual. But in this place, the word is used to introduce the account of what happened to the he- heavens and the earth. It serves as a link between the panoramic uh, display of God's creation in chapter 1 and the more intimate, homey style of the first man and woman and be, and they're being created and set in the garden in chapter 2. Now notice that in verse 4 there is a transition from mentioning the heavens first to mentioning the earth first. Chapter 1 tells us about the creation of the heavens and the earth. And now in verse 4, chapter 2 tells us about the earth and the heavens. The rever- it's, it's the reverse. And this is, this is significant. It's stressing now what's happening upon earth. We're not going to talk about the great skies and about the, the planets and, and, and other things. We're, looking, we're coming down, zeroing on where man has been placed. Heaven is God's place and earth is our place. And it's focusing on our place, the place of human beings. And so God now tells us of the manner in which, so to speak, all the focus is now on what happens on earth. It's on earth that God called forth vegetation and animals and a fashioned human beings. And on one hand, it fills our hearts with gratitude and wonder to think of the great lengths to which God went to make a beautiful and lovely place in which we might live in. But on the other hand, it reminds us of our lowly position. In the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we're going to read a lot of sad stuff. We're going to read the sad account of the way in which human beings graspingly attempted to cross the boundaries that God had assigned for them. And they rebelled against God. They tried to make themselves gods. And each time they 
transgressed those boundaries, the result was catastrophic. And heaven is not to be grasped at. We are not gods, you see. Heaven is not to be owned or controlled by us. It's to be received as a gift of love that can only be ours by the one mediator who came from heaven to earth in order that we might have sins forgiven and that we might gain access to God in heaven. But for now, the story focuses on the lavish provisions that God makes for man and also on the abundance and the beauty that was ours before we decided to take things into our own hands and rebel against God. Now, everything in Genesis chapter 2 is geared toward the well-being of man. The one creature that's created in God's image is paying special attention to man here. Now, notice another feature that's introduced at this point. Throughout chapter 1, God is referred to Elohim. I think, I don't know, it's maybe 30 times. It's many times. It's just peppered throughout chapter 1. The Hebrew name Elohim is used. And now he is called Yahweh Elohim. And it's translated in many of our versions, he is called the Lord God. Now in Genesis 1, we read of God in his majesty and power. And that's why Elohim is appropriate for that. But in Genesis 2, we have a much more personal account of his care for and his interaction with his creatures. This explains why the name for God is Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. In chapter 2. And the combination of Yahweh Elohim, now there's the word Yahweh or Jehovah, the older versions, that's in many places of the Old Testament, but the combination where it is Elohim Yahweh, that combination, or Yahweh Elohim, this is this is never in the rest of the Old Testament used in such a concentrated dose as it is here in this chapter. And at this point, it's not fully understood, but it's especially significant as it is the covenant name for God in the exodus from Egypt, especially Yahweh is the covenant name for God. Yahweh remembers his covenant with Abraham, and he fights to deliver his people from bondage in Egypt. And in a similar way, God demonstrates here his loving care for his creatures that he has made. The sovereign creator God who merely speaks and it's done in chapter 1 is the loving, caring Heavenly Father who's interested in the welfare of human beings in chapter 2. Yahweh Elohim, it perfectly, it beautifully combines the omnipotent creator and the covenant redeemer aspects of God into one magnificent name. And this combination, just to show you how concentrated it is, it's 16 times in this chapter and it's used, or, no, I should say, it's used 20 times in this chapter, and it's used only 16 times of the whole rest of the Old Testament. So more than the whole rest of the Old Testament is found here in this passage. Now having noticed the highly significant introduction to this section, what we want to do is come to the story itself. And as we go through the story, there are three scenes that appear before us, that of a barren land, and then of a, a unique creature, and then of a lush garden. The first scene is that of a barren land. And we read of this in verses 4 through 6. In the middle of verse 4, we read that in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, or the earth and the heavens, and what was it like there upon earth? 
It's before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to, to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Now, in this section, we find that the land is without vegetation. It's without a farmer, and it's without a rain. Those three absences are there. Now, first of all, there was no vegetation. I'm using that in a narrow sense in terms of the kinds of vegetation that we feed on, that we eat, we grow in our gardens, we grow in our orchards, and the like. Uh, there, we, we can't say that there's absolutely nothing that's grown yet at this point. Strictly speaking, at this stage, the land was not without plant life whatsoever. But verse 5, it speaks of the time where, and here I quote again, before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown. And we're given a hint about what those two plants are that are referred to here, what they're being spoken of, when we go on to read that there was nobody, no man to till the ground. In other words, this, this relates to the kinds of plants that would be grown by tilling the ground. And verse 5 anticipates the time when the kind of plants that are associated with tilling the ground are going to grow. And the first kind of plant that's referred to in verse 5 is the Hebrew word siap. And it's plant, translated plant in the New King James. And I think more accurately, it's translated shrub in the New American Standard. And this first kind of plant doesn't occur anywhere in chapter 1. So it's referring to a distinct type of plant, the siak plant. And we are given a hint concerning what plants are being spoken of when we go on to read that there was no man to till the ground. And there was, and, and just like I said, uh, the kinds of things that would be grown by tilling, this is what it's focusing on. And this first, this first kind, it occurs just three times in the Old Testament. In, I should say three more times in the Old Testament besides this one place here. One significant occurrence is when young Ishmael was placed under Isiak in the wilderness by his mother. So this is the kind of thing that would grow in the desert. This is the, not the kind of plant that you would, that you would kind of like. It's oftentimes a shrub. It would be a, a waste type of a plant. This is where she found a little bit of shade. And also a siak grows in a place where those that have been driven out by men seek shelter in the wilderness. In Job chapter 30, verses 4 and 7. So the reference is to some kind of a desert shrub or bush. And here in Genesis 2.5, the word seems to be used in anticipation of the curse. And it's explained further in 3.18, where God says to Adam, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. And possibly the siak refers to not only the shrubs that would grow in a desert, but maybe even thistles that would grow up in a garden. And the other word that's used in Genesis 2.5, it's translated herb in the New King James, or plant in the New American and it's of a completely different nature. And in this place, it appears to refer to the kind of plants that grow as a result of human cultivation, through planting, through irrigation, such as beans, tomatoes, and the like. And neither this kind of cultivated plant 
nor the kind of weeds that came up after the curse, neither those kinds of plants existed yet in the place where God had placed man. And especially significant here is that there were no cultivated herbs, vegetables, and the like that could provide immediate sustenance to man. And so it's in that sense that we have this caption in your outlines, there was no vegetation. But then there was another thing that's absent at this point. There's no farmer to take care of it. Verse 5 adds that there's no man to till the ground. After God had created the garden in Eden and prior to the fall, verse 15 tells us that God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. But prior to the creation of man and then of the garden, there's no man to cultivate the choice plants and herbs that God has in mind for his garden. And so this too is lacking. There's no farmer to take care of it. And then thirdly, there was no rain. And the second half of verse 5 tells us that Yahweh Elohim had not caused it to rain on the earth. And verse 6 tells us that instead, a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Now there's a lot of uncertainty, and commentators spend a lot of time going back and forth as to what this word that's translated mist means in this place. And, and so we can't be completely dogmatic, but in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and also the Latin Vulgate, they interpret this word not as mist, but they interpret it as a spring. And unfortunately, the Hebrew word edo, that's the, that's the word that's here, it only occurs in one other place in the Old Testament, so that's not a whole lot of help to us. It occurs in Job 36, 27, where we read that God draws the water drops that distill from the rain, from the Edo, from the flood or from the mist. And this word, it was also, though sometimes we can figure out what a word means by comparing how it was used in other settings, pagan settings, or even other uh, languages that were similar to the Hebrew language. And there is, in the Akkadian language, the word id, which means river. And yet river, it's an unlikely translation here because that verse, verse 4, uh, excuse me, in verse 6, God says that an Edo went up. It doesn't say an Edo flowed down. It went up. And rivers, they go down. They don't go up. And so it's not likely that it's referring to a river. And one possible interpretation is that verse 6 refers to floods that rise up over the land by means of underground rivers such as the Nile River flooding the fields. The water rises up and then it floods the whole area and that's what happens in many ways in the Nile area of Egypt. But it's also possible that the traditional translation mist or a heavy dew is correct. But whatever the case, we can't be dogmatic about it, the narrative seems to be applying at this point that conditions are not really perfect yet for, for man to live upon earth. There's something lacking here. And whatever it was, if there's no rain and there is this little bit of mist that takes care of it, a little bit of the growth, and there's, or perhaps there's uh, some water that comes up, but there's not a regular rainfall. And these three things are missing in the original account, or the original condition of, of the place where God placed man. So there is in this first scene a barren land. But now we come to the second scene. And the second scene in this chapter is the scene of a unique creature being formed. And we read of this in verse 7. 
And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now in this verse, there are two features that uh, distinguish the creation of man, that make him distinct from all the other creatures that God made uh, in chapter 1. And the first thing that is said here that is distinct, this distinguishes man is that man is a God-formed creature. In a moment, we're going to see that he is also a God-breathed creature. But notice, first of all, he is a God-formed creature. In the first part of verse 7, we read that Yahweh Elohim formed man of the dust of the ground. And in several places in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word translated formed, it explicitly it refers to what a potter does when he shapes a clay that's spinning around on a wheel and he's making a vase or a cup or, or, or whatever. And it refers, therefore, to the work of a potter. In Isaiah 29 and verse 16, it, three times in this one verse, shall the potter, there's the participle form of the word, a verbal noun, shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? Or shall the thing made say of him who made it, he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed, and there's the noun form of the word, say of him who formed it, the verbal form of it, has he no understanding? And so in that context, a potter is, is very suitable for the, the type of creation, as it were, that's taking place. And, and yet there are other places where this word occurs in which potter is not the, the best translation, for instance, in Isaiah 44, 12, the word is used to describe the work of an ironsmith with metals. So whether it's an ironsmith or whether it's a potter, they're both working with existing materials and they fashion and they shape that material. And instead of, and so basically if it was with iron, the translation would be a, he's forges or it is a, something forged. But here in Genesis 2, the material that's molded and shaped by the divine craftsman is what is said to be the dust of the ground. That's the material God uses. In contrast to the creation of the animals in chapter 1, here we are told that man was made of something already in existence. And the term for dust, it generally means loose earth. It means mud sometimes. It means mortar. And fashioning dirt or mud this is reminiscent of the work of a potter. So it does seem like the image of a potter is here in Genesis chapter 2. And the work of a potter necessitates intimate involvement with the clay that he's shaping, that he's making. You see, it's very different in, in modern factories where you have machines, you, somebody just pushes the buttons or they pull down levers, and there's not really any intimate involvement with the materials from which something's being made. But the work of a potter, it involves, he gets his hands right in the stuff. He is intimately involved in what he is making. Now, obviously, God doesn't have physical hands by which he shapes Adam as he pleases. But we do have, in Genesis chapter 1, his figurative nature. And, and yet, figuratively speaking, God gets his hands dirty, so to speak, informing man of the dust or the mud of the ground. He is intimately involved in shaping and forming the first man. 
But not only is man a God-formed creature, he is also a God-breathed creature. In the second half of verse 7, we read that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And again, this is something that distinguishes man from every other creature that was made. The first man, representing all the humanity that would be born after him, he receives the divine breath that gives him life. And this is not something that's reserved for the elite of mankind, that they get some kind of a heavenly afflatus, you know, that breathes upon them. And they're, 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 This is not for the elite. Mankind as a whole, represented by the first man, receives his life as the breath of God himself. And the common word in the Old Testament for breath is ruach. It's a word that occurs nearly 400 times in the Old Testament. But the word that's used here is not ruach, but it's nesama. And like ruach, which is applied to God, man, animals, and even the false gods, this word that's used here for breath, nesama, it's only applied in the Old Testament to Yahweh and to man. And it is man, man alone, no other creature that receives this breath. He receives the divine in breathing. And hence, as a God-formed and as a God-breathed creature, man is a living creature or a living person. Until God breathes into him, he is a lifeless corpse. And again, as Kidner explains, the image of God breathing life into every man is very intimate. And here I quote, breathed as a warmly personal with face-to-face intimacy of a kiss and the significance that this was an act of giving as well as making the self-giving at that god in self-giving he imparts breathing as as it were kissing mouth to mouth a breath into the into the man this is the way that man receives his life distinct from all the other other creatures and the result of this divine breath is that man became a living being. And in some of the older translations, man is said to become a living soul. And from these translations, it's assumed that Genesis 2-7 is speaking of a distinctly human soul, and that it's talking about the soul as opposed to the body. And yet I don't think that's the emphasis of the text at this point. And it's true that you and I have never dying souls, and there are many other places in the Bible that teach that doctrine, But this is not what's being taught in this place. It's simply saying that by means of this divine inbreathing, man became a living being. That's what the text says. And the same word is used in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, for the living creatures that fill the sky and the living creatures that fill the sea. And that which distinguishes man from the animals is, is not that he's a living being. They're living beings as well. And just as God imparted the breath of life to animals as well as to human beings, he is able to take away the breath of life from animals and man both. And in Psalm 104, we read about how God withdraws his his providential care and man's breath, the creature's breath, it, it goes out. But what's distinct here is not the fact that that man is a living being, because the creatures are living beings. What's distinct is that man receives this life by the personal inbreathing of God. It's never said that God breathed into the animals the breath of life. 
Now what is said here about God breathing into man's nostrils the breath of life? This represents the direct work of God from without. It doesn't represent something that just kind of happens by way in which man was as a creature. The language of chapter 2 and verse 7, it completely obliterates the idea that mankind came into being by means of potencies that were within his creaturelyhood, creaturehood all, all, all along, or even way back further, that there's something potent within the dust of the ground, and there's a little oozy, squiggly thing that came out of it, and eventually all the squiggly turned into something a little bit more fancy, and eventually it became a man. No, there's not the slightest idea of emerging life from earlier life forms. There's not the slightest hint that man was such a life form and he became a more highly evolved version of that life form. No. Man was formed and man was inbreathed by means of the supernatural formation and inbreathing of God. He had no life prior to this, this moment. And it wasn't that at a certain point he transitioned from a lower life form into a higher life form. No. Before the day in which this happened, he was not a living being. He wasn't alive in any sense of the word. So you can't put evolution into this and see, see how somehow we can think of theistic evolution and reconcile it with the, with the Bible. It can't be done and be fair with the text. Only when God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life did he become a living being. Prior to that moment, he wasn't a lower form of life. He was a non-life. He was not a living being. But on the very day he was created, he went from not being a living being to being a living being. Now, By way of application, before we move on to the third scene in this chapter, I want to just emphasize that man is a creature, and yet he's a creature with a special relationship with God. On one hand, he is a lowly creature that's related to the ground. He comes from the dust of the ground. And on the other hand, he's not just like any other creature, any other animal. On one hand, he's a lowly creature that's related to the ground. Adam's creation from the dust of the ground, it reminds us that like animals, which were also created from the dust of the ground, we too were made from the same lowly stuff. In chapter 2 and verse 19, we read, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field. God used the same raw materials to create animals that he, that he used to create human beings. You and I, let us ever remember, have our origins in the dust of the earth. That's where we came from. It's not very lofty, is it, that idea? It's pretty humbling when you think about it. And so Calvin remarks, the body of Adam is formed of clay and destitute of sense to the end that no one should exalt beyond measure in his flesh. He must be excessively stupid who does not hence learn humility. And even though we have been wonderfully formed and made by God, because of our sins, we're going to all return to dust from which we came. And so we read in 319, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The Hebrew word 
that's used there is a wordplay between the words for man and ground. And it's a continual reminder of where we came from. Not only Adam, but all humanity are called Adam, which is the Hebrew word for man. And all humanity comes from the Adama, the ground. You see the relationship? It's a wordplay. Adam, all men, came from Adama, the ground. And because of the entrance of sin into the world, unless the Lord returns first, all of us are going to return to the dust that we originally came from. Therefore, when you're tempted to pride over your looks, remember, remember this. When you're tempted to pride over your physical abilities, remember this. There's coming a day in which your beautiful face will be covered with worms. And the process will begin of returning back to the dust. And a day is coming when those muscles that have been strengthened by all the time that you spend at Planet Fitness, those muscles in the gym, they're fostered in the gym, they're going to feed maggots. And God's ordained them to return your flesh back to the dirt from which it came. I don't know of anything that's, that could be more humbling than that thought. We are related to the, the dirt, to the ground. And on the other hand, man is not just an animal. He's a creature that has a special relationship with God. And so in the first creation account in Genesis 1, we learn that man has been made in the image of God. He has a dignity that is shared with no other creature. And here in this chapter, we learn that man was enlivened by the breath of God. Another thing that is not shared with any other creature. And the nobility of this depiction stands out, especially in comparison to the ancient pagan myths of that speak about creation and how things came into, came into being, especially living creatures. Uh, for instance, there's a Babylonian Atrahasis epic which describes the creation of man in this way. And I want to read just a little bit of a segment of it. And uh, it begins with a word about Wela, who is a god in, in Babylonian lore. Wela, who had personality, they slaughtered in their assembly. And here it's talking about the assembly of all the gods. And from his flesh and blood, Nintu mixed clay. And after she mixed clay, she summoned Anunnaki, the great gods. The Igigi, the great god, spat upon the clay. Mammy opened her mouth and addressed the great gods. You have commanded me a task. I have completed it. You have slaughtered a god together with his personality. I have removed your heavy work. I have imposed your toil on man. Now you and I, we have not been created from the blood and guts of a slaughtered demon god and the spit of the rest of the gods. That's not the origin that we have. The Adarhasis epic, it depicts human beings as coming from evil origins as being, and then being held in contempt by the gods and then being created for the purpose of doing the, the ordering nasty jobs that gods hated to do. The, these human beings are made to dig the ditches and uh, this job that the gods used to do, they now don't do anymore. Instead, you see, we have been created in God's image and we were given life by the inbreathing of God. What a different approach this is. Genesis chapter 2 helps us as humans to develop, you see, a healthy assessment, therefore, of ourselves and of others. It helps us view ourselves properly. Unless we grow proud, it reminds us we came from the dust. But there's also the opposite that we could go to. 
We can loathe ourselves because maybe we look in the mirror and don't like what we see. Unless we grow listless over the lack of talents that we think we have. Unless we despair in our own value in the sight of God. Let us remember that, that God is, though we are lowly, he has bestowed immense honor upon us. He breathed into us the breath of life. He made us in the image of God. In Psalm 8, 5, the psalmist gets it right when he addresses God about man. He says, you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. We are lower than God. Yes, we are from the dust. And yet we've been crowned with glory and honor. Genesis 2 also gives us the right perspective about other human beings. When you run into somebody that tends to turn you off, maybe this person has bad manners, or maybe this person is really ignorant and says really things that are really dumb and you just can hardly be standing around such ignoramuses because you're, you're so smart. Or maybe this person is inconsiderate, excessively talkative or self-centered. When you run into somebody or have dealings with somebody in the church or outside the church like that, remember that that person that you are tempted to despise has a special relationship with God. That person has been created in the image of God. That person has received life originally by the inbreathing of God. And so likewise, when you, when you run into a smelly homeless person, this person deserves to be treated with dignity because of what the scriptures teach about human beings. Well, what we've seen so far in Genesis 2, it prompts us to wonder what God's going to do now when this situation exists. From the barren land of the first scene, and then the second scene, we've just looked at the unique creature that God made. This brings us to, to, to a little suspense here. Is God going to just leave Adam in this barren type of a situation? Described there in verses 4 to 6. In the third scene, what do we see? We see the answer to that question. We have the picture of a lush garden that is described in verses 8 through 14. In the second seed, God is portrayed as a potter. And now the divine image that appears is the image of a gardener or a horticulturist. Now maybe you have taken a stroll through some botanical garden. You've been impressed with its beauty, with its symmetry, and with its tranquility. And when we take a look at the very first garden that was ever created, the very first garden planted, we can see how well the Lord provided for Adam and Eve's every need, even to the point of enjoyment and, and comfort. And as your pointed guide through this botanical garden, as your preacher, I want to just point out a few features of this garden. And the first, let me stress that this is a real garden, a real place, verse 8. Let me read that verse again. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. This is not a dream. This is not a fictional story. This is not the, the secret garden story. This is not Alice Adventures in Wonderland story. Now, there were a number of these mythical creation stories with garden scenes, and some of them that circulated from ancient civilization and there's some similarity to the scriptures sometimes because the, the traditions that got garbled when they went on from generation to generation, 
beginning with the true and ending in the false. And there are uh, several of these other stories, but the way in which the author in Genesis 2 presents his material, it's decidedly anti-mythical. As we read in Genesis 2, we're not exposed to exaggerated portrayals of, of enjoyment and delight. We don't have the, the Muslim picture of, of men with all kinds of, of virgins and these kinds of things that tantalize uh, and, and make, peop make people uh, drool, as it were, for that kind of a place. But instead of these exaggerated portrayals, there are abundant provisions. They're also counterbalanced by the fact that God put Adam and Eve there to tend and to keep the garden. He gave them work to do. It wasn't just a, a big vacation now from here on out. They aren't just there to, at a resort. Furthermore, Genesis 2 specifically identifies the place and it informs us about its geography. It's a real place that we're talking about. And in particular, in verse 8, we are told that it was the eastward in Eden. Now, from the perspective of the Israelites to read this, Moses is writing this for the Israelites to read, what would eastward be? It would be eastward from Palestine, where they, where they live. It would be going towards Iraq, that direction, if you look on the map. And so the region of which it was located is called Eden. And Eden is not given as the name of the garden. We often think of the Garden of Eden. That's the name. It's actually the garden in Eden. Eden was the region in which this garden existed. And based on its eastward direction and on the names of the of two out of the four rivers that we can identify, one of them as being the Tigris and the other as being the Euphrates, it's very possible that this was located in Mesopotamia or in modern-day Iraq. And it's impossible for us to identify with absolute identity the other two rivers that are mentioned and uh, yet we can do well to remember that this garden existed prior to the Genesis flood so the fact that we can't figure out where these other two rivers are should surprise us because the whole geography of the whole world was changed with the flood and there are two two here that, you know there's pages and pages that I read the art commentators arguing for this and that and the other for what those other two are I'm not going to waste your time and uh, your patience to try to go into it all. But the meaning of the name of the garden is, is uh, it's uncertain. Now, this word Eden, now what does that word mean? Well, etymologically, in other words, where the word came from through other languages, the word is often connected with the Sumerian Akkadian word Edenu, which means a plain or a flatland or a prairie. It's a term that was often used to designate the plain between the Tigris and the Euphrates River and southern Mesopotamia which seems to be the general region in which this garden was planted. In another language, Ugaritic texts, they use this word or a similar word to reflect an area that is well watered and lush. In the Hebrew the word Eden, it can be related to the verb Adan which only occurs in one other place in the New Testament and it's translated to delight yourself, Nehemiah 9.25. And it also appears to be related to the word edna, which means pleasure, in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 12. And so because of these different associations, the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, and it renders this word paradison, which gives us the word paradise. And I think this gives us the idea, a little bit of the flavor of what that word Eden means. 
It refers to a place that is lush, a place that is uh, paradisical, a place that is, that is, is where you have delight. So it's a wonderful, delightful place called Eden. So it was a real place. But it was also, notice with me, a prepared place. We read in verse 8, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. God planted this garden. God prepared it. God, God did everything for it. He's pictured, you see, in this place as a gardener, not as a potter anymore. He's preparing a large area of the land as a place of abundant provision and refreshment and delight. In Exodus 13 and verse 8, it's called the garden of the Lord. And we read there that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord. And it's given the same name in Isaiah 51.3, for the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wildernesses like Eden and her, de and her desert like the garden of the Lord. And so pro prophesying a better day than what Israel was experiencing then at that point, he speaks of the wilderness being turned into an Eden, as it were, and the desert being turned into the garden of the Lord, referring to the same thing. Queen Mary's Garden is a world-famous garden in London, named after the wife of King George V. And no doubt she took special pride in that garden. And that's why it is named after her. It's Queen Mary's Garden. And she no doubt, it, how she had designed it, it reflected her taste, it reflected her desires. And even so, this is the garden of the Lord that we're talking about, not just Queen Mary's garden. Eden was a garden that was planned and prepared and beautified by the best designer and by the best horticulturist in the history of the world. And I tried to find out how much it was that Queen Mary was actually involved in divining, uh, designing this, this uh, garden that's there in, in, the, in London, and I wasn't able to spend a lot of time to to look, and so I couldn't really find an answer to that. But one thing we do see is that the verbs that are used in this chapter, they indicate that this is God's handiwork. God is active all the way through this chapter. He's at work. He made something, verse 4. He formed something, verse 7. He breathed in verse 8. He planted, verse 8. He caused a sprout in verse 9, etc. All the way through, God is doing this. It is said here that the Lord God, He is the one that planted this garden eastward in Eden. So it was a prepared place, even as Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. Thirdly, it was a delightful place. Verse 9 says, Out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And from the context, it's clear that this is not a statement about God causing trees to grow all over the world. Because, it's, because that had been carried out prior to the creation of mankind. The statement here is about what God caused to grow in this garden. And among the trees that were planted was every variety of trees that were good for food, this says. And no doubt there were also vegetables in abundance. But God mentions the, 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 the trees. And fruit hangs on trees. Why is it that the trees are singled out? Well, I can't prove this, but it, it seems to me that 
God is stressing delicious food, fruit, fruit, food that's being made available. Now think of it. There's fruit that's hanging on trees. This is like dessert hanging on trees. That's the dessert they had back in those days. That's the sweet stuff. And notice also that verse 9 tells us that God made every tree grow that was good for food. And this, this implies great variety. Every kind of tree that has fruit, he made it available in that garden. And it should also be emphasized that God was not miserly with his provisions. In verse 16, he tells the first pair that may freely eat of every tree of the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God has given us all things richly to enjoy. In addition to being good for food, God provided every tree that is pleasant to the eyes. He created what was pleasant and beautiful to look at. He utilized a tremendous variety of color and form. This is why Eden is, it suggests pleasure. It suggests delight in the very name of the place. And whenever it's mentioned in the Bible, it stands for a lovely environment. Now think of this. You're, you're an Israelite. You've been wandering through the wilderness. Half the land of, of Israel is basically desert. It's wilderness. And this is in contrast to all of that. A place of refreshment, a place for lavish provisions, and of that which is pleasant to the eyes. Now this leads me to just emphasize that beauty is part of God's creation. There's some things which are good just because they're beautiful. That's what their goodness. When Jesus was anointed with costly oil, the disciples, they, they just thought in utilitarian terms. Well, we could have sold this precious ointment and given lots of money to the poor. But Jesus called it a beautiful thing. And human beings need an environment that's not just functional, but also pleasant to the eyes. You go down to Washington, D.C., and some of those government buildings are just plain ugly. They needed a better designer. They just look awful. And, and, and it's right that we try to beautify our homes and beautify the place where we meet, as long as we don't make it into an idol. So this was a place that was a prepared place, a delightful place, and now finally it was a life-giving place. And we read of that in verse 9 and on down to verse 14. And there are two specific trees that are mentioned, and we'll have more to say about those trees in the next sermon. Um, but particularly, I would just have you notice here that in these verses, beginning in verse 9, there is the mention of the tree of life. And it's said that this tree stood in the midst of the garden. It indicates that it was at the very heart of the garden. And it conveys the thought of life being offered in the most public and the most available way possible. And then in addition to the tree of life, mention is made of of four rivers. Two of them we recognize because of their, their names today, the Hittichel, which is the Tigris River, and also the Euphrates, verse 14. And we're not going to get into the other rivers, as I mentioned. But what I don't want to stress is that verse 10 portrays these rivers as proceeding from one river. And that's not very unusual, because when we think of our country, rivers flow into the big river instead of the other way around. You know, even the mighty Missouri flows into the Mississippi River, for instance. And yet this is a, a river that this is the source, and then it spreads out into four different rivers. 
And later on in the scriptures, we read of water flowing from the place of God's presence. It becomes a picture of abundant blessing. There's a river in the city of God, Psalm 46. Ezekiel 47 speaks about that river that comes from the throne of God. And it speaks about how his, his shallow at first. And you remember how the prophet goes in and he gets his ankles wet, first of all. Then he gets up to his knees and so forth. And then eventually it's, it's something that he, he has to swim in. It is so deep and it is so wide. And this is a picture of God's grace. It's a picture of abundant life that flows from the throne of God. This is the picture that we have of God's life-giving, uh, the life-giving nature of the place that God made for Adam and Eve. As we close our thoughts there this morning, I want you to, I want to just stress two things here by way of application. First of all, we learn wisdom here. God is showing us where it is that we're going to find true life, true happiness, and true joy. We always go looking for it in the wrong place. God tells us where it's to be found. And when you and I, when we are tempted to sin, the common denominator of every temptation that comes to us is a temptation that presents an alternative thing to what God has set out for us. And we, we think, well, that thing is going to give us life and happiness and joy. You take the various commandments, submission to authority, fifth commandment. Why is it that a child wants to disobey? It's because he, doesn't, he thinks he can have more happiness by doing his own thing instead of doing what his parents said. Why is it in the Sixth Commandment, the, the commandment against murder? You murder people to get wealthy, to get revenge. Sins of uncleanness that violate the Fifth, Seventh Commandment. We look to those, you see, for some pleasure. The Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. Again and again, you see, the picture is the temptation comes to present something that is an alternative pleasure, pleasure source. And wisdom learns that it's always a lie. And that God is generous, God is gracious, and he offers in his way and in his places, in the places of his appointment. It is in that that we find true joy and happiness and life. And then also, and here I conclude with this thought, not only do we learn wisdom from this, but we learn hope. The book of Revelation ends where Genesis begins. It ends with the garden of God and the new creation. The Israelites were reminded of a lost paradise as the descriptions are given of the land of promise in Deuteronomy and other places. And they lose all these blessings when they, when they sin against God. And the New Testament, it picks up the same basic theme. It speaks of the state in which even now believers that are in Christ, they go to a heavenly kingdom, the Jerusalem that's above. And when they die, Though they're absent from the body, they're immediately in the presence of Christ, in the presence of life and blessedness. They're in paradise. This day you will be with me in paradise, Jesus says to the thief. But in the final chapters of the book of Revelation, John comes to the final glory of it all. He describes the garden city in great detail. The tabernacle of God is with men. He lives among his people. And the river of Genesis 2.10 becomes a river, a life-giving water, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. And the tree of life lines that river. And the trees grow with life-giving fruits. And all of this, is, it expresses a superabundance of God's lavish goodness to us that he has planned for us. It, it, it speaks of the life and the blessedness 
that he has in store for those that he has planned to redeem. But outside of the evildoers, they have no part in this blessed place, this blessed garden that awaits us. And may the Lord help us in hope as we go through the difficulties of life to realize that there is, yes, there are oases along the way, as the Israelites had in their wilderness wanderings. But there is supremely a place, a garden that awaits us, a place of refreshment, a place of God's presence and of God's glory, a place in which we will find happiness in ways that we've never experienced them up until that point. May the Lord help us to prepare for that day.